If a small flock of cartoon bluebirds didn't help you get dressed this morning, that just means you haven't yet listened to Fine Tuning with Jim Hill and Drew Taylor. No, the black dress slacks, please. Thank you. And now, Jim Hill. Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation news and commentary. I'm Drew's co-host, entertainment writer Jim Hill, and we are recording this show on Friday, May 17th, right after Mr. Taylor has to scramble out the door for an afternoon of screenings. And you are seeing inside of one day two very big movies, things I I actually want to see. Yeah, I'm seeing Brightburn, which is the James Gunn-produced kind of evil Superman story, and then I'm Ah. seeing Godzilla, King of the Monsters. So I'm very excited about both. And then I'm seeing Aladdin tomorrow. So we'll have a lot to talk about on the show. Okay. All right. That's further on down the line. But speaking of stuff we talked on the show just last week, we were talking about the DuckTales programming event they were doing at the Disney Channel where they were showing eight brand new episodes in 11 days. Have you seen the the Duck Knight Returns? No, not yet. Tell, tell, Tell me about it. I mean, this thing redefines meta- there's so much of this show that nods to the Dark Knight trilogy. Who do they get for Alistair Borswan's voice but Edgar Wright? That is funny. Then it gets even more meta. I mean, they have Jim Cummings to voice Darkwing, only he's the actor who's played Darkwing in the previous television series. And so Jim Cummings is voicing Jim Starling. Okay. He ends up upset that he finds out he's at a signing of a sofa store you know uh, doing a guest appearance and ribbon cutting that they're making a darkwing movie they you know it's trending worldwide and so he goes to where they're shooting the movie which of course is mcduck studios which (laughs) the logo is basically the walt disney animation studios logo but in the mickey pose is scrooge And by the way, you have to use your connections through. Evidently, the crew on the show actually made t-shirts for this episode with this logo. Oh my God. I'm going to ask about that for sure. What makes this episode a must-see is that if you've ever watched the original Darkwing Duck as part of the Disney Afternoon block, there's so many things they get right. For example, at one point, you're looking at a Darkwing Duck comic and they actually brought in Mike Peraza, who does the Darkwing Duck comic to do these panels that you see. In fact, they even let Mike sign them. Wow. And there's a security guard in the show that's called Tad, and that's Tad Stone, the original producer of the show, and he gets to voice that character. Oh, that's awesome. You have to stay for the very last second because they fold Darkwing straight into the new version of DuckTales, and not only that, you get to watch the creation of one of Darkwing's arch rivals right on camera. It it finally explains a character from the original show in such a way as like, holy crap. But, but clearly, wow. again, done by a bunch of people who loved the original series and respected it, but at the same time had some real fun with this. I mean, Darkwing Duck meets the Dark Knight trilogy. They have Megavote in the show, but he's dressed as Bane. And then there's this great line where Darkwing at one point says, I have to work with this Joker. Lots of nods to the Chris Nolan movie and well worth checking out. So wow. if you haven't seen it. I know. I need to I need to just binge all the all the new episodes. Same thing I, here. I same wait. thing here. But you can go to Disney now and, and check that out. But speaking of things you need to watch it, how did this get by me? Star and the Forces of Evil is ending? Yeah. 
this yeah. Sunday night at, at 7.30. I've been a fan of this series since it began back in January of 2015. And in fact, was lucky enough to get into the building like a year before the show launched. And they, they showed me what they had at that point. And it was so smart and so funny and had such wonderful production design. And only four seasons? I mean, Big Bang gets 12, Game of Thrones gets 8, but Star Wars and the Force is Evil only 4? Well, I mean, that's one more season than we got of Gravity Falls, so just think about uh, that. Or did Gravity Falls only got two seasons, right? That's true, yeah. that's true, yeah. true. Kind of breaks my heart, but on the other hand, I would love to see what Darren does next. Yeah, I mean, I became friendly with Darren when I was at Disney, and one day she brought me into her office, and she's like, this is the production map, you know, the mm. schedule. And the amount of overlapping episodes and all the things they have to coordinate, especially with with eleven minute episodes, oh, I feel yeah. like it gets even more complicated. Mm-hmm. So I think that you can only do these shows for so long. But I think it's great that they ended the show on her terms. And mm-hmm. hopefully, if Shout Factory is listening, they'll put together another beautiful box set like they did for Gravity Falls, and we can Ex- enjoy that. <laughs> Excellent suggestion. Excellent <laughs> suggestion. So you must have gotten. The same heads up that I did about the Walt Disney Animation Studios short circuit program. Yeah, it's really interesting. Well, you can talk about what it is, and I'll tell you what I think is interesting. (laughs) Back in January, we had Pixar announced its Spark shorts program. And I can't help but notice that there's kind of a similar language to these programs. I mean, Pixar announced that Spark Shorts was an experimental storytelling initiative that welcomes new creative voices at Pixar and Animation Studios to share their stories. And But here's the thing. Spark Shorts has supposedly been up and running since 2017, whereas Walt Disney Animation's Short Circuit program supposedly been around since 2016 when you were at the company did you hear anything about this i never heard anything about it and i think it's so weird that they didn't publicize it until now Mm -hmm. there are 20 of these shorts ready to go of this of the short circuit shorts i mean that that's crazy no i agree but again just to sort of reinforce the parallels between these two programs that the Disney Short Circuit Program says the goal of this innovative program is to take risks in both visual style and story, surface new voices at the studio, and experiment with new technical innovation. So that sounds a little bit like Paperman. Yes. Look, I love that Marlon West, who for years has been doing amazing effects work, is getting a shot at, at telling his own story. Likewise, Becky Brisset, co-head of animation on Frozen 2, Kind of intriguing that these stories will only be two minutes long, but like you said, 20 shorts yeah. ready to go. It's crazy. Downside, if you want to sample these things before they supposedly they'll start bubbling up on Disney Plus in spring of 2020. Right. But if you want to check these things out earlier, you can fly over to France next month for Annecy, the Annecy International Animation Festival, which is running from June 10th through June 15th. And I, I'd love to go, Jim. I would love to go. <laughs> You're kind of a busy guy right? <laughs> on the 15th, right? Oh, you that's know. true. That's true. But anyway, so Spark Shorts, those are uh, currently available on the Disney Pixar YouTube channel. But again, if you drill down to the original press release for that from January, they did also mention that these are headed over to Disney+. Plus. So long range, what's the thinking here? The notion you'll go there in addition to 
the latest films and all that, you'll have a file you can access of all these short pieces or I guess it's gonna be like um it's gonna be like the sex love and robots on Netflix, I think, where it'll be they'll just be a short you know, short circuit button and you'll press it and you'll get all the shorts, mm. individual shorts there. My question is, are they gonna put some stuff in there that maybe hasn't made it out previously? Like Glago's guest could maybe um... make it there? All I've ever seen of that was the 30-second clip that sort of bubbled up online. And, yeah, I mean, that's that's one of my animation Great White Whales. I, you know, I want to see that thing. Right. You know, here, Disney's debuting this at, at Annecy. But for the opening ceremony, remember that Warner Brothers Looney Tunes program that got announced last June? Yes. They're also going to be in France at Annecy with their shorts. In fact, I heard a, that. Supposed to be featured in the opening ceremony. On the other hand, as opposed to the the twenty shorts for Disney, remember, Drew, when this was announced, it was a thousand minutes of stuff that would be released digitally. I forget the 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 exact digital, channel. mobile, and broadcast. There we go, and that's sixteen hours and forty minutes of animation. Right, and this is supposed to be something they're doing every year. Well, the other thing is, like, we haven't talked about, like, we haven't, we don't know who's doing it. The way they describe it, it's a cartoonist-driven approach to storytelling. Okay. (laughs) But what does that mean? I'm hoping that this is going to be sort of the modern take on how a Chuck Jones version of Daffy Duck is different than, say, a Bob Clampett version of Daffy yeah, I'd, I'd really love to see some great individual takes on these characters. but And also, it's worth noting here that in addition to the opening ceremony, uh, where they're going to be showing a couple of shorts, uh, Warner Brothers Animation on Wednesday, June 12th, at Annecy will be doing a full-blown presentation about their Looney Tune cartoon initiative. And if any of our listeners are there and want to share stories, we'd love to hear about it. I guess Marlon is going to be writing herd on the Frozen 2 presentation and, again, are talking about a lot of the challenges they faced with this Disney sequel. Did you know that I, I saw Marlon, I went to a Beastie Boys thing at the Egyptian a few months ago, mm-hmm. and he was there because he did the animation. I don't know if you remember the Beastie Boys Shadrach video. It was kind of oh painted over. God, and that's he, right. And he did, that, he did that video, and he came and spoke. So it was yeah. really interesting. He's he's a legend as far as I'm concerned. Oh, no, 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 definitely, definitely. In fact, also BB's kids, didn't he? Or... Yes, yep. All right, well, while we're talking about Warners, just this morning they announced they were adding some new voices to the Scoob cast, and, and this is that Shaggy meets Scooby origin story that Warner Brothers Animation has in the works. It's virtually a year from today. It's out in theaters on May 15, 2020. But we got, what, Mark Wahlberg, who's uh, joined the cast, the voice cast is the voice of the Blue Falcon, who was the human companion of Dynomut, character that debuted in the, the, the sort of Scooby franchise in 76, 77 as part of the Scooby-Doo Dynomut Hour. And bringing in Jason Isaacs to voice Dick Dastardly. Yeah, especially because somebody else had been cast as Dick Dastardly before this. And I forget who, but they're no longer... I mean, Jason Isaac is replacing somebody. Interesting. Yeah. All right, we'll, we'll have to poke at that a bit. Um, I love his work. I mean, I, I'm sure a lot of people know him from Lucius Malfoy and the Harry Potter series, or for that matter, the 
the work he did during the first season of Star Trek Discovery. But have you ever seen that live action Peter Pan that Universal put out in 2003? Where I really like that movie. Same thing here. I love that film. And his George Darling Captain Hook is amazing. Yeah. It's worth the price of admission all by itself. Well, I guess as long as we're talking about Universal and Hanna-Barbera stuff, did you ever get on the fantastic world of Hanna-Barbera at, at Universal? I never did, but it seems like their Scoob is going to have a bunch of characters from other Hanna-Barbera properties. So maybe this will be... <laughs> if anybody's been on that ride, maybe they'll give you a little hint as to what Scoob is going to be. But I've, I've watched videos of it. It seems really cool. Oh, it was. It was. And it came to the market in sort of the same window of time that we got Star Tours that debuted in a Disney park in 87, but didn't open to the studios till, what, 90? And same year that we got A Fantastic World at at Universal, then the year right after that, we got Back to the Future. So with all all these interesting takes on how to do a simulator ride, and Mm -hmm. what was fascinating was it was basically a collaboration between two effects animation studios rhythm and hughes did the cg backgrounds where they they really did a great job of sort of reinventing the look of the flintstones and the jetsons and the original scooby-doo you know where are you but in 3d cg form and then sullivan bluth did the anime in fact it's it's a credit to the those guys who i guess were you know kind of sitting around like boy we're, we're doing a troll in central park do we have anything else to do <laughs> and they got this but they they did such a beautiful job with hand-drawn versions of of these 1960s hanna-barbera characters but as drew mentioned you can go online right now you can see not only the actual ride film but they actually have the pre-show, which is worth it alone. Because at one point when, when Joe Barbera, the real, really for real Joe Barbera, is exiting the scene, he pulls his snaggle pussy literally as he exits stage right. <laughs> I'm sure people are thrilled about seeing Joseph Barbera on the big screen. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm old. You know, I, I, I look forward to strange things. And, and speaking of looking forward to strange things, how long have we been waiting for these the, the Rocco's Modern World and the, the Invader Zim movies? When were those announced? I feel like they were announced years ago. Because yeah. there was that great Rocco, like, sort of profile of the Rocco's Modern Life mm. creator earlier this year that mentioned the movie. And it was like, oh, yeah, I remember that. That was supposed to happen sometime. Yeah. And it just sort of it, it went into sort of this void where I, I don't understand... Why Nick would have put these in production and then not gone forward with them? But, you know, we've been waiting. Well, what's going to happen? And finally, this week, as part of the quarterly earnings call, it, it, it no, wait a minute. It was, it was, no, it was the, it was the upfronts. They revealed that they had sold them to Netflix and that uh, Rocco's Modern Life, Static Kling, and Invader Zim inventor in, in, entered the floor pus. I, I don't even want to know yeah, what that let's is. let's not go there, yeah. Okay, but both of those are going to bubble up on Netflix, and they'll be available for viewing this summer. I, I don't have an exact date uh, as to when they'll, they'll debut. On the other hand, I do have an exact date on when Disenchanted, the Matt Groening fantasy parody series that also is on Netflix. I, I think you and I reviewed the first season last year or thereabouts. Yeah, are you excited to watch it again? 
there were episodes I liked. I, I felt like a lot of animated shows, it got better as it, it went along. I'm definitely going to be intrigued to see where they go with this. But at the same time, what was it? I want to say October of last year, they renewed it for two more seasons. Oh, really? Yeah. Scheduled pop-up on Netflix 2020-2021. So I guess total of 40 episodes, whereas... Rick and Morty got that amazing 70, 70 episode renewal. Yeah. And again, speaking of upfronts, we just found out this past week that we now at least know the window when Rick and Morty is coming back. It's November. I don't have a date yet. Hey, I'm, I'll take a month. You know what I mean? Okay. I agree. Again, again folks, we, we like to stay current. We like to stay on top of, of, of breaking news. And just today over at Disneyland Paris... The walk-around version of Bo Peep, and and again, this is the brand new iteration of the character that keys off of Toy Story 4, and I started meeting with guests. And I looked at the photo and immediately sent it to Drew, and what's your take on the character? I mean, it's interesting. It's it's an interesting combination of performer, because you and I had heard that it was going to be a face character, Mm -hmm. but it's not a face character. There's a mask or head but, or something but yeah at the same time i i guess if you figure that this character was going to be making appearances in the park alongside woody and jesse and and buzz you know there was no way they could do it as a get a face character without then well you know i guess we got to do these other ones as face characters but yeah well you came up with some interesting toy story 4 information too right there is a toy story 4 storybook and in fact, just this past weekend, I was at Target and they have the entire Toy Story 4 aisle, which, by the way, I was looking, there is no tinny toy yet. There is a toy. It's out there, but they just, I don't think it's, I don't think it's very well stocked. Oh, okay. Maybe your episode with Shelly about tinny will, will make them put it on the shelf, but. Here's hoping. Here's yes. hoping. So what's happened is that someone has scanned this entire book and put it up online and it's with this out there and I'm, I'm really hesitant to start getting into specifics here because I don't want to spoil this movie for a lot of people but I I wonder how long Disney and Pixar are going to be able to keep this under wraps particularly with all this material out there because there's a fundamental there's a huge change a character a, a character that's been with the franchise since the beginning they make a decision that really changes the series if it if it goes forward from this point. If I were working in Parks and Resort and I had spent millions upon millions of dollars building a Toy Story Land, I would be a <laughs> little concerned about this. But then again, you know, well, let's face it, the one that's in Orlando, that's set at a time when... Woody, Buzz, you know, Jesse, the, he, you know, what's set in Indy's backyard? It's when he owns these toys. So I right. guess that, that will forever be that moment. But I guess people need to go into Toy Story 4 being ready for things to change. Right. I guess that's all we can safely say at this point. Speaking of things that change, we've got the live-action version of Mulan coming out uh, in March of next year. And... When Drew and I get back from our commercial break, we're going to talk about what one of the big changes for that film.
Okay, we're allowed to talk about this, right? With the live-action Mulan is minus a certain little red dragon. That is what I've heard from people at uh, Consumer Products, is that mm-hmm. there is now no little red dragon. But that makes sense, because this is, this is a live-action film, and, yeah. and more to the point, it makes it that much more Mulan's story, that her success, that she's not being helped by Creaky or Mushu or, or that sort of thing, but... The animated version of Mulan, which which hit theaters back in June of, of 1998, it's a favorite Disney film of mine largely because it was mostly, like 99.999%, created a, the, the old feature animation Florida building by, by the team there. It's true. And they won the right to do that after a couple of real setbacks. I mean, I don't know if you, you know the story, Drew, about the original... Kill the Beast number from Beauty and the Beast. I don't know about the original. I know that Florida did a lot of that sequence. Yeah, well, but the thing is that, and nobody knows how this happened, but sometime when you when you have some free time, queue up Beauty and the Beast and watch the Bell number. The, the what a puzzle to the rest of us is Bell, and watch the villagers, and then jump to the Kill the Beast number, and it's like, boy, the people in this village's look has changed significantly. Feature Animation Florida got a Kill the Beast number, and nobody to this day knows what happens, whether they got an older set of model sheets or whatever the deal was. But when they started cutting the end of the movie, when they started, you know, Florida started forwarding the footage to Burbank, and it's like, what the hell's going on? These don't look like the same villagers. And it's like, well, we're working off the reference material they gave us, and they had to do this last-minute fix on this sequence and go in and really retool the look of things. And it was it was kind of a sore point. It's like, well, I don't know as we can trust you guys if if you you know, to work on our features, if you know, you, you can't deliver stuff that work that's consistent with what we're doing out here in Burbank. So that largely drove the decision of what chunk of Lion King they got to do. They they got to do just can't wait to be king. And the thinking was, well, that whole part of the movie is so stylized if they can't deliver a consistent look that's consistent with us, it's not going to matter because it's a stylized, you know, musical number. But that was such a breakout hit portion of the film. They're like, all right, well, okay, I guess we can give you guys your own feature. And that that's how China Doll, that was the original name of Mulan. And, and then it was the legend of Mulan. And Wasn't it the legend of Fa Mulan for a little while too? Yes, yes, it yes. was. Yep, yep. They kept looking around for a title for this one, but was lucky enough back in the days when the Disney Institute would do animation symposiums. They did this wonderful presentation where June Foray came out and talked about all the years she'd worked for Disney and how she did the voice of the, the you know, Grandma Fa. But they told all these great stories about working on the movie. How, for example, uh, one of the original storylines of the film was that Mulan and... Shang, they had been betrothed since they were children. And so there was this really awkward dinner number where this was the first time the, the kids, had, they had met since they were children. And, you know, the families were getting ready to plan this wedding and Mulan and Shang just did not get along and, and a big embarrassing dinner. And the irony is that jump forward into the story, she's impersonating a, a male soldier and she and Chang become good, close friends when they're soldiers together in the army. And the movie is bookended by the wedding banquet where now they become friends and they become lovers. And I, 
But again, it was one of these things where it's like, I, I you know, live action film, the scene works in animation. It doesn't. So right. it gets tossed out. And speaking of, of things that work in animation, one of the things that's most impressive out of, of Mulan is the fight on the mountainside, the Hun charge. For my money, that's the first time Disney ever did something where they brought in CG into a traditionally animated film where it worked. I mean, that for that crowds, crowd, yeah, yeah. Oh, when when those crowds come over the the hill, it's not like Hercules or or for that matter, Hunchback, where yeah, you look at these crowds and they pull you out of the movie because they they clearly don't fit with with the traditional animation. We're here. It's just like this is a great scene, but. They only had two weeks to pull together the test to sell the studio on this is what we want to do. And they did it. Now, now mind you, the the crew for this movie was so dedicated. I remember the Bancroft brothers talking about how these are all very, very young people at the start of their careers who signed on to be part of the studio in Florida and how you'd be walking around the building at one o'clock in the morning and there'd still be people there animating. And it's like, Go home, or at least get a shower. They were in Florida, Jim. What else were they supposed to be doing? You know what I mean? (laughs) Very true. I hope that some of these ideas that fell by the wayside get revisited for the live-action film. Like, for example, there's this wonderful shot where Mulan has learned that Shan Yu and, like, the five surviving members of his, his Hun party have somehow infiltrated the Imperial Palace. And they do that, you know, the equivalent of a crane shot where they pull up over the crowd. When you're looking at it, the sea of people with like five and six different Chinese dragons dancing to the crowd. And that was actually supposed to be a key point of the story, that, that Mulan had found out that not only had they infiltrated the palace, but they had done it under the guise of a Chinese dragon. But the notion is when you pulled up the shot and showed, well, there's five of them. How is she going to figure out which one is, you know, the one they're in? And it's just, and at this point it was like, you know, you're in the climax portion of the story and it's like, we are running for the curtain. We don't need an extra complication here. Let's, we, we can't continue to, you know, the, the idea was she was going to run through the crowd and tear out the costumes off of three and four of the, the other Chinese dragons. But, you know, she was too late. The one had made it on the stage and they'd snagged the emperor. Another plot complication that fell by the wayside was at one point there was a character called Bo Gun who was actually supposed to have sold out the emperor and the, the Chinese empire to the Huns. And that plot thread stayed for so long that they and they put so much time and effort into designing the character that when it came time to cut it, it's like, but we love this character design. So mm-hmm. the, what they did is, you know, he obviously spent much, much of the time having frowny faces because he's the villain and they made him smile and they then turned the character into Shang's dad, General Bao. Oh, wow. Now, as they're working on Mulan in Florida, Lion King comes out and you got to remember middle of that summer, there was suddenly that controversy about, oh, what's the thing with the petals and in the air and do they spell sex? Do they spell SFX? You know, to pay tribute to the special effects department. And, And so here's Mulan with its skinny dipping scene and it's sort of like okay you know and the studio got so nervous about it because they figured that if they can sneak in the word sex somebody who's animating the skinny dipping scene is gonna slip in a penis (laughs) 
The amount of people who have slipped in penises. Uh, <laughs> I'm not doing that job. <laughs> but this was the thing. They were so concerned about it that they made this decree, came down to Florida. It's like the only people who can animate this, the characters in the scene are the actual supervising animators. Because the thinking was that if they do that, they'll know who to fire. And then after that, there were all of these conversations about, you know, we have to make sure that whether it's Ling, that she's not touching Mulan inappropriately. And they spent hours upon hours uh, trying to figure that. In fact, it's interesting to to talk about that because the other scene in this movie where they had endless discussions about how to stage it and how much, how far was too far was the scene where Mulan enters the camp for the first time. Because it was like, this was going to be where you showed how truly gross men are. And they talked about at this animation symposium about, we had so many meetings about how to do the light the fart scene. <laughs> where in the end now, now what you get is you get, get or you, you see somebody sort of leaning over and somebody coming up behind them with a candle. And then you cut, to Mulan's face sort of looking horrified and hearing the fart noise off screen. Let's see. What else? What else? What else? Well, oh, I, you were going to talk about the ending of the Mul- of Mulan. Well, yeah, that, that again, uh, we, we, you know, the gang of three, you know, Yao and, and, and Ping and the like, the scene at the end of the movie where the emperor gives Mulan, you know, Shan Yu's sword and the, the emperor's crest and all that. But initially this, you know, as part of this scene, there was this, elaborate goodbye with the the gang of three characters i mean and it was on the level of the scene at the end of the wizard of oz where dorothy says goodbye to the cowardly lion and the tid woodsman and the the scarecrow i'll miss you most of all and when they did a test screening of it it's like no that's too long and so they cut it out and so the next version of the scene was these three characters standing in the background looking on respectively is after the emperor gives, you know, uh, Mulan the, the, the sword and the crest, she hugs him and then gets on her horse and rides off. And now they get a note from the student. No, no, they, they need to say goodbye to her. And so third time they got just in a, just long enough and just strong enough and, and beats and lines that it worked. Though during this period, Dennis Leary was the voice of the, the little short squat fighter character Yao and for some odd reason they took him off the production and this is when Harvey Firestein came in I've always heard it was because of he was doing the voice of Paka was that the oh character? the little um the stone yeah the little stone idol. character yeah, yeah from uh, I go and I want to say that was Nick Ranieri who animated that on Kingdom of the Sun and when they cut that character everyone in animation was like He's such a great voice, and you know we gotta find him. You know, gotta find a place for him. So they found it in Mulan, and and while we're talking about the end of the movie, you know they tried to give Mushu a far bigger moment at the end of the film. Because remember, you know, the, when it started off, he was the disgraced family guardian, and he's finally redeemed himself and said, so, "All right, you can be a guardian again." And what was supposed to initially happen at that moment was that all of the other guardians that we'd seen early in the movie, the ones that were up toward the, the top of the roof of the pagoda, came to life. They you know, came down and congratulated Mushu, you know, welcomed him back into the club, and 
So they're playing this version of the movie back in Burbank, and Roy, it was Roy E. Disney who gave them the note. It's like, guys, we're 30 seconds away from ending this movie, and you've just introduced seven new characters. <laughs> and it's just what, no, no. And, and, and coupled with the fact that, for example, the Tiger Guardian was bouncing around like Tigger, and it's just it's like, look, no, no. You need to find another way here, which is why you circled back around to the ancestors and you know that's why you got them instead but that's kind of a reader's digest version of how mulan mutated during its time at walt disney animation studios and for me it's going to be fascinating to see you know the live action take on this material because drew weren't you mentioning that that they did what they were showing it on the lot and everyone was just blown away by how yeah. good this was yeah, I mean, I've heard this is, like, the live-action movie to beat. It's supposedly just epic and has just an amazing scale to it. I, I cannot wait to see it. I think if we've been feeling a little bit of fatigue, let's say, of the Disney live-action movies, that this will give it a shot in the arm. That's my okay. hope. And speaking of epic things, what's going on with Light the Fuse? What, are, what have we got uh, going well, we on finished our We finished our second episode with uh, Barney Berman, who is the uh, makeup guy from Mission Impossible 3, and he lets us in on a little detail that you you would like and you should st- share with Dan Z mm-hmm. that the bizarre sequence from Force Awakens was actually originally intended for J.J. Abrams' Star Trek 2009. No! And, and that is just one of many anecdotes you will find and fascinating about this uh, in this interview. So check that out on Light the Fuse. Ooh, okay. Yeah. Well, no, 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 no. Even if you're not a Mission Impossible fan, this is a podcast you want to listen to, folks. Great, great story. And a wonderful interview you do, Drew. Thank you. And on my side of the fence, we got the Disney Dish podcast I do with Len. We got the Looking at Lucasfilm podcast there I do with Dan. Dustin Fuse and I do the Universal Joint podcast. And, of course, we have the Marvel Us Disney podcast. And also the I Want That with Michelle Valladolid, who, yes, you're right, Drew, we will talk on the next podcast about all of the Toy Story 4 toys and and why I can't find a tinny toy. But until then, folks, head over to iTunes and rate and recommend our show. That would be incredibly helpful. And again, if you really like what we do here, heading over to Bandcamp and subscribing, that would be a very good idea. I think so. All right. Well, until then, thanks for listening, folks, and we'll be back soon. Be sure to tune in again for another fine episode of Fine Tuning with Jim Hill and Drew Taylor.